You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. I'm actually going to read the entire text for us or the entire chapter for us today as a way of review for those that maybe haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, but then even for those that have that just need a a fresh reminder of what we've seen over the past couple of weeks. We started in John chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with anointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. We talked uh, two weeks ago about how uh, sometimes God delays intentionally uh, certain acts in our life, uh, things that we expect him to do, he either doesn't do or takes longer to do them than we expect, and it's a sign of love. Uh, It's a sign of understanding the bigger picture. So here, Mary and Martha expect him to come and to heal. Instead, the text tells us that because he loves them, he doesn't, uh, with the intent of God receiving greater glory through how he will carry out plans that are different than Mary and Martha. And so he said, while God's love is not always demonstrated in ways we would prefer, we can trust that his actions, even when delayed, will always lead to the best outcomes of our faith. So the goal is going to be here to increase their faith and their belief in him. It says, then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, my friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And so we talked about Jesus's sovereignty over death in this passage, that he's not concerned about going and prematurely being put to death. He says, as long as it's daytime, we're protected. It's only when the night comes, when my time here on earth has ended, that I will actually be able to, uh, to die, to be killed. And so he's showing his sovereignty over death here. Um, Thomas expresses some doubt here in that, hey, we're going to die. But he also expresses belief and trust in that I want to go with him to do that. So Thomas believes that in going, they're probably going to die from it. Um, but he wants to be there with his shepherd if that happens. And so they set forth to come to Lazarus. They've intentionally waited long enough for him to die and to be dead for several days. It says, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So last week we talked about hopeful grieving, that in order to grieve with hope, our emotions must be informed by a belief that God always remains in control, always acts in good ways, 
and is intentionally moving creation to a climactic conclusion that will eradicate death with eternal life. And so what we see here is she's grappling with the emotional aspect of, if you'd been here, Jesus, he wouldn't have died, right? She's, she's trying not to blame Jesus for it, right? She's trying to protect her own self from blaming Jesus for it, but says basically, look, if you'd been here, he would have made it, but even now I know you can do whatever you want, right? And so she's informing her emotions with theology that she already has, that God's in control, that God can do whatever he wants. And so she's trying to preach to herself even here. It's, hey, if you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened, but I also know you can do whatever you want, right? And so I'm submitting myself to that, even though I'm hurt and disappointed that it didn't, didn't play out the way that I wanted it to, right? Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell on his, at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? So last week we talked about what it means to grieve with hope. We said that we should seek encouragement from theologically sound comforters. There's a lot of people trying to comfort Mary and Martha here, but we see later in the passage they're not yet believers. And so we certainly, as, as grieving believers, need to make sure we surround ourselves with theologically sound comforters. We need to avoid questioning God's ability to act. Right At the end of this passage, the Jews are like, uh, he can heal blind people, can he not also have healed this sick man? Right? We want to avoid questioning God's ability. We also want to guard against disappointment when he doesn't act. Mary says something real similar to Martha, but doesn't follow it up with, but you can do whatever you want, right? Instead, she just says, if you'd been here, then he would not have died. We have to guard against disappointment when God doesn't act in ways that we want him to. We need to find hope in alternate ways for God to act. And that's where Martha's at. She's saying, this is what I wanted. I'm disappointed that it didn't play out that way, but I also know you can do whatever you want. And so she's looking to see what are you going to do? Um, Jesus challenges her about the truth of the resurrection. Uh, he weeps with them, uh, which gives us great comfort to know that Jesus cares about the things that we're going through. He, he grieves with us, um, and he's angry towards the causes of our grief, right? And so we saw the emotional aspect of Jesus where he's troubled and grieving, particularly towards the, the, the sin that causes this, right? Like Jesus is working to fix creation that's fallen because of sin. And so he knows that the weeping here, the grieving here, the sorrow here is due to sin. And so this is, this is Jesus's purpose in coming is to eradicate sin, to deal with sin, to, to basically absorb the punishment for sin, right? Um, so that we can get to a place where resurrection happens and there is no more sorrow, there is no more crying, uh, those tears are wiped away for good. And so we saw last week um, how we can grieve, hopefully, 
as Christians. And so now we come to the actual resurrection. It says in verse 38, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Our summary sentence for today, in times of grief, we must strive to believe in the promises of God and lean on stronger believers when we are struggling to, realizing that while God's glory will always be accomplished, we might miss seeing it due to our lack of, our lack of belief. In times of grief, we must strive to believe in the promises of God and lean on stronger believers when we are struggling to, realizing that while God's glory will always be accomplished, we might miss seeing it due to our lack of belief. For our kids, when we feel sad, we must remember the promises of God and look for him to do something great. We're going to see that God's glory is always accomplished. God doesn't need us for his glory to be made evident. But what Jesus communicates to Martha is that if she's not careful, she's going to miss seeing it play out because there's plenty of people in the story that do miss it, right? The, the, the Jews that run to tell the Pharisees about this account are not doing so because they're impressed or because they believe. They're doing it out of fear of what this implication means for the rest of the nation, right? And so while God's glory is being put on display, a lot of the people miss it in this story. Because they don't have belief in him. And so while it's put on display, they don't see it that way, right? And so it's very possible that if our mindset's not right, going through a a grief or a trial or a difficulty, that if we're not believing in him, there can be fantastic, great things happening in the midst around us, and we're oblivious to it, right? God promises to work good for his children, But there's a part of us where we have to believe to even recognize and see some of that good, right? And so he challenges Martha, hey, don't don't lack belief here and miss seeing the glory of God. He says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God, right? So in times of grief, we strive to believe promises of God. We lean on stronger believers when we're struggling to, realizing that God's glory will always be accomplished, but we might miss seeing it due to our lack of belief. All right, this passage uh, clearly focuses on the purpose of the miracle versus the other details that might satisfy curiosity that we have, right? Um, I mean, there's all kinds of questions that I think we'd love to ask Lazarus about what his experience was like being dead for four days. We don't know if he had a recollection of it, right? We don't know if Jesus brought him back uh, and erased his memory. Um, I tend to think that that that's probably the case in some ways, in that I don't know that Lazarus would have been satisfied to be back here for the duration of the rest of his life having experienced glory, right? Except for the fact that Jesus wasn't there, right? So he's missing the, the key element of being with Christ. 
Um, but but man, I'm just I'm just so curious to know like what were those conversations like? And I know those conversations happened because even in chapter twelve, people are still coming to Jesus because of Lazarus and his account to the point that hey, we got to put Lazarus to death too, right? So. He's still talking about this. There's still conversations that are ensuing. We just don't have any of it recorded, right? So we don't know, uh, we don't know where Lazarus went during this time because you know, a lot of people debate as to whether or not the location of Christian souls changes during this point where you've got that, that parable of Lazarus and the rich man and Abram's bosom, and is that uh, completely um, part of the parable or is there some actual truth there that, there was some place where believers and unbelievers could see each other because I don't think that that's the case now where unbelievers are staring into heaven constantly. Right? I think they're completely separated from, from God and his holiness. Um, but we don't know for sure how all that plays out. So we don't really know what was, what was Lazarus' experience during this four-day uh, hiatus from his body. What did he do during that time? What did he remember when we came back? Like, we don't have any of that. John doesn't include any of that. Um, and I think the reason for that is so that God's glory is the focus of this passage and not Lazarus's experience, right? The ensuing belief that comes from this story is the focus because that's why John writes. Remember John 20, uh, 20 31, I've written these things so that you might believe, right? I mean, Jesus could have preached a fantastic sermon after raising Lazarus from the dead. I mean, he could have gone in a whole host of different directions. He could have talked about how this resurrection is very much like salvation and the resurrection from the, from, from the spiritual death of sin, right? He could have talked about the future hope of resurrection. I mean, he could have preached a fantastic sermon after this, but instead we're just told he, he did it. He told him to clean him up, get him out of those burial clothes, and then we're done, right? So we don't know any other details. What we do see from this passage is that God's glory is, is shown brightly, in that people believe, and that's the purpose for why John even includes what he writes, so that we can believe more in Jesus, okay? Let's look at five things real quickly before I start to have uh, a coughing fit, which is coming, I'm sure. So um, we're going to go quickly today and see what we can cover. Um, Number one, act obediently even when it doesn't make sense. Number one, act obediently even when it doesn't make sense. For our kids, we should always obey Jesus no matter what. We see right off the bat here in verse 38, Jesus was deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It's a cave, stones against it. Jesus says, take away the stone. And Martha starts to rebuff his request, right? She's got her own reasoning for why this doesn't make sense. Um, She, number one, may have believed that Jesus could resurrect but may not have had a strong reason to expect he would resurrect, right? I mean, if, if I polled everybody in this room that's a believer, I think we'd get a 100% response that Jesus can bring anybody back from the dead, right? I can tell you when I attended a funeral a couple of weeks ago, I had no expectations that part of the agenda for that funeral was gonna involve somebody raising this little girl back from the dead, Right? Did I walk into that funeral believing that Jesus could raise her from the dead? Absolutely. Did I walk in there expecting him to raise her from the dead? Absolutely not. Right? And I think even when you look at Jesus' life, more often than not, he's not performing miracles. Right? I mean, think about it. We've talked about a few cases where he healed individuals who had been sitting in that same spot 
for years. And he had seen these people potentially, or at least been in close proximity to these people multiple times and had not healed them. All right, so if you sat Martha down and said, hey, do you think that, that Jesus could bring your brother, brother back from the dead? She may have said, oh yeah, like he could. But she may not have expected that he was going to. Now they've had this conversation where she says, yeah, I know you can resurrect him in the future and Jesus seems to not be satisfied with her only believing that piece. But her coming to this point in the story and saying, hey, why are we moving this? It's gonna stink, right? Seems to indicate that she's not expecting what's about to happen, right? That she's got reasons for not wanting to be obedient right here. Um, She's still, number two, trying to figure things out based on her own reasoning, right? I think she's fully convinced that God's gonna do something great and that God's glory is gonna be shown and that whatever Jesus asks, asks of God, his Father, can be given to him. But it's not translating into any type of expectation, it seems, right here in the here and now. But she is a great example to us because she follows through with it, right? Even though she's concerned about the stench, even though she's concerned about the embarrassment of what this will do to her brother's memory, she still follows through with what Jesus tells her to do. Right? He says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took, a stone, they took away the stone, and they wouldn't have done this without her giving the command to do so. And so it's an example to us that even though Martha's struggling, reasoning through this, right, doesn't make sense to her, she does respond obediently to what Jesus tells her to do. Right? So, so this is a, a, a thing that we can look to Martha and say, hey, she's a good example here to us of acting obediently, acting obediently when obedience doesn't seem to make sense in this, in this case, right? And that's where sometimes we're hit in the face with some unexpected tragedy, unexpected trial, right? And it can be very tempting to doubt God, to question God, to maybe even be disappointed or angry with God for why he's choosing to carry this out, right? Some type of disappointment that we experience and And what we're called to do obediently is to trust him in the midst of that, even when maybe it doesn't make sense. Because when we're looking around, we're saying, I don't see how this is of God. I don't see how this could be of God. When it doesn't make sense, we act obediently and we trust in him. All right. Number two, we fight to believe so we don't miss God's glory. We have to fight to believe so we don't miss God's glory. That's what Jesus calls her to here. He says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? I don't think that Jesus is trying to indicate here that if you don't believe, God's glory is not going to be accomplished or it's not going to be true, right? Instead, he's wanting her not to miss out on what is about to happen. So we fight to believe so that you don't miss God's glory. Number one, we lean on promises to protect ourselves from doubting. Jesus is reminding her that he's already told her something, right? He's already told her that if she believes, she'll see the glory of God. So he's calling upon her to lean on something that he has said previously. So for us as Christians, we lean on promises to protect ourselves from doubting in the midst of grief or tragedy or trial as well. Now, when did Jesus make this promise to her? Well, if we, if we rewind back to the beginning of the chapter, at least some of the same terminology is being used in verse four. It says, when Jesus heard it, 
he said that illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Right? So the message comes from a messenger to Jesus from Mary and Martha. Brother is sick. We need you to, we need you to come, basically. Right? So he makes this statement. It's very likely that this individual returns the message to her. Right? Or it's possible that in the midst of their conversation upon his arrival that Jesus has told her this. But at some point, it's been communicated to her that, that God's glory is going to be put on display in this situation. And he's reminding her of that. He's calling her to believe that, to trust in that, to look for that. Okay? So we lean on promises to protect ourselves from doubting. Number two, <clears throat> God's glory will happen with or without you, but requires your belief to see it. He doesn't say that her belief will create the glory of God or will allow the glory of God or will add to or magnify the glory of God, right? He's saying, look, this is about to happen whether you're with us or not with us, but we'd really like for you to be with us here to believe so that you see it, right? And the indication is is that there's some people that aren't going to see this here, and they run and tell the Jews and the Pharisees that, hey, we need to do something about Jesus, so God's glory will happen with or without you, but requires your belief to see it. So even in the midst of <clears throat> bad circumstances for you, God keeps his promises of working good for his children. It just may not always be as evident to us as it could be. Now, sometimes we're looking for it and we still don't get to see it fully because we won't know maybe until glory what God had intended in some of the things that we've gone through. But there's definitely the possibility that there are things that we can see that we will miss because our, our, our mindset's not right, right? Instead of believing, we're doubting. Instead of trusting, we're questioning. And so Jesus says, look, don't miss what's about to happen here. Don't miss the glory of God here. It's about to happen. It's about to be on display. Some are gonna see it, some aren't. And he calls Martha to be a part of the group that does get to see it, right? So act obediently when it doesn't make sense. Fight to believe so you don't miss God's glory. Certainly didn't make sense to roll that stone away unless Jesus is going to do something magnificent, right? The stench would have been bad. The effort would have been unnecessary, right? But she acts obediently, and then she fights to believe so that she doesn't miss God's glory in this setting. Number three, pray believing prayers when you can. Pray believing prayers when you can. What does Jesus do after the the stone's been rolled away? It says, Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that you may believe that you sent me. Now, I don't know if we have a portion of Jesus' prayer here or if this is all that he prayed in this setting. Seems like there's a missing piece to this where He's already talked to his father and, and asked his father for what's about to happen, and he's thanking him now for it, even though it hasn't yet happened, right? Um, Jesus prays to thank God before the event has even happened. Now, he's praying very specifically for something that's not a promise of God, right? So this is not a... Um, a how-to manual on how to get a resurrection, right? So it's not, hey, if you'll pray in advance and then thank God in advance, 
you too can work a resurrection, right? Like that's not, that's not what's happening here. Um, but Jesus does go to his father, ask for something from his father. He has a unique relationship with his father, right? In that the two of them are united in knowing what his will is, right? Where we don't have the advantage point of being able to do that. So we can pray for healing. We can pray for God to do certain things, but we have to couple it with if it's your will, right? Where Jesus doesn't have to pray for if it's your will. He knows what his will is. So he can pray for healing. He can pray for a resurrection and get a resurrection because he knows that's God's will, right? Jesus prays to thank God before the event has even happened. Well, well, how do we do that? Well, I think we can pray believing prayers when they are based on given promises. So we can model what Jesus is doing here in the midst of grief by praying things that we do know is his will in every grief situation, right? We can pray knowing that God intends to work good for his children, right? So we can pray asking for God to work good for his children. And we can also pray and thank God before it actually happens, knowing that it has to happen because he's promised to do it, right? So Jesus thanks God for something that he's already asked for, But it's very specific because Jesus knows his Father's will. We have to pray a little bit more vague in that we don't know exactly what God wants to do in every situation. But from a bigger picture, we do, right? In that God never has his children go through difficult circumstances without good occurring in there, right? So when we know for somebody else or for ourselves that a trial, difficulty, grieving situation is upon us, we can pray specific promises, right? And we can expect those promises to be kept, right? So we can pray for, uh, we can pray for contentment in the midst of those circumstances, right? Because we know that Jesus never leaves us or forsakes us, right? That, that we don't need the things of this world to keep us content, that we can be content with Jesus alone. So there's specific things that we can pray and specific things that we can thank God for before we actually see them come to pass, trusting that they will because they've been promised to us, right? Not as specific as Jesus does in this passage because it's not a how-to manual on how to get a resurrection, right? But it does demonstrate a principle to us that we can pray things that we know are God's will and we can thank him in advance, which helps us to not miss his glory when it's put on display, right? We can be praying for goodness to happen. We can thank him for the goodness that's going to happen. And then we can look expectantly to see the goodness when it does happen. Okay? So we pray believing prayers when we can. And then number four, we find hope in the prayers of others when you can't. Number four, we should, or number two for our kids, we should listen when other people pray out loud because their words can encourage us. Notice what Jesus says here about his prayer. Father, I thank you that you've heard me. He's like, but let's be honest, I know that you always hear me. I'm really doing this so that the people around can hear me and you talking. Why? So they can believe. So they can believe that you sent me. Now, this passage has kind of changed a perspective that I've had when sometimes people come up to me, I've had people come to me and say like, that was a really good prayer or can you pray for us because you're a really good prayer, 
right? And I'm just like, I don't even know what to do with that, really. Like, I don't know if I'm supposed to be a good prayer. Um, Am I supposed to be complimented about my prayers, right? But in looking at this passage, I think there's some truth to the aspect that sometimes we need people to pray because we don't know how to pray in that situation, right? Now, Now, we're told that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us when we don't know how to as well, right? But there could be times where, man, I know God's supposed to be good in this situation. I know I'm supposed to be content in this situation, but I'm kind of like Mary and Martha here. Like if you had shown up, this wouldn't have happened, Jesus, right? So maybe I can't pray a very good believing prayer right now on my own, right? Like maybe I can't sit down and just, and just, and just have a conversation with God right now because my emotions aren't in it right? My theology is not speaking loud enough to my emotions. And there may be times where we need to say, I need you to pray right now for me, right? I need you to pray for me because I need to be encouraged. I need to be encouraged by what you can bring to the table through your prayer, right? Now, I don't know if I've ever really thought about that before, right? But I think we, we can be intentional, especially in situations where we're not really sure what to say to somebody else, right? We've all found ourselves in situations where somebody's sharing with us, like, hey, I'm going through this, this just happened, da-da-da-da-da, and you're just like, I don't know what to say here, right? There's something different about saying, let me pray for you versus let me share some advice or guidance with you, right? There's just something different about that, right? I can maybe even say some of the same things, but there's something unique and different by saying, let me intercede for you to our heavenly father and pray truth, pray truthful, theologically sound things for you that sometimes can be better received than us just having a conversation, right? Jesus says, what I'm doing right now is for everybody else listening. Right now, I would not presume to think that we need to strive to be great prayers, right, where people are calling upon us to be individuals that pray for them constantly to where it becomes like a prideful thing. But I do think that we ought to be so in tune with God's word that when we find ourselves around others who are struggling in their belief, struggling to persevere through a situation, that we can pray for them and it be an encouraging thing for them to hear us pray for them, that it can be a fruit. It can be a fruit of that prayer. Right? So I think that, that ought to give us cause to, to, to look for ways to potentially encourage somebody by praying not only for them, but with them for them, right? So that their heart can maybe hear some things that they've forgotten or are doubting, right? Because Jesus says, I'm saying this so that people hear and can believe, right? And there may be an opportunity for you to pray for somebody so that they too can believe in Christ more than they're currently doing, okay? Pray believing prayers when you can. Find hope in the prayers of others when you can't. Number one, we can seek out the prayers of others when we don't know what to pray ourselves. We can seek out the prayers of others when we don't know what to pray ourselves. And then number two, we need to be ready to pray believing prayers for others to help increase belief. We need to be ready to pray believing prayers for others to help increase belief. All right, then lastly, number five. Embrace Jesus as the victor over death by substitution. Embrace Jesus as the victor over death 
by substitution for our kids. The resurrection of Lazarus proves that Jesus could raise himself from the dead and will one day raise us from the dead too. After he has prayed this prayer, it says, he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many commentators has, has said how important it was for Jesus to use the term Lazarus versus just come out uh, because everybody would have come out. Um, that There had to be clarity there. It's probably even more true in the sense that um, you know, the, the way tombs were structured at that time and most likely with this cave, there were probably other dead bodies in there with Lazarus. So not just that Jesus had to be careful not to summon everybody from every graveyard in the area, right? That particularly when they rolled that stone back, there's a good chance that there are other bodies kind of stacked in the walls in that tomb, right? And so there probably was some clarity that needed to be given there. Hey, the, bodies that were t- the body that we're talking about here is the one that was just placed in there, right? Some of you other people, um, we're not going to call you back from heaven, right? Like we're going to let you stay there. Um, calls Lazarus forth. They unbind him from his death clothes um, and allow him to be set free uh, from what's been binding him for the past four days. Um, again, John doesn't focus too much on what happens after this, except for highlighting how people react to it, right? Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary <clears throat> and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Right? So this resurrection divides people into two groups. Those who believe and those who want to put an end to it. Right? They go to the Pharisees with the intent of the Pharisees reacting in a way to put a stop to this type of behavior, which is crazy. Crazy, because remember, some of these people are there to console Mary and Martha, right? Like, we're so sorry for your loss. Like, we wish we could do something. We wish we, wish we could have been there to fix this. We wish we could have helped, right? What, what can we do to help, right? And Jesus shows up and raises them back to life, and these consolers are like, no, 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 no. This is not what we, we meant, like, we bring you a meal, Right? We'll watch the kids for you, right? Like, like we weren't intending to actually do something to see this fixed, right? And so they run, they run to the Pharisees and say, hey, this has to stop. This can't, this can't go on, right? Some people believe, some people don't. Number one, many choose to believe in Jesus who calls the dead to life. We see faith developing in some of these people. <clears throat> we know from our study in Revelation, Jesus holds the keys to death in Hades. This is an example of Jesus sticking the key in and turning it, right? Like this is him using the key to death in Hades because he summons Lazarus back, right? So he is absolutely in control of death. He's absolutely in control of resurrection. He holds the keys. He uses the keys here, right? He uses the keys here to bring Lazarus back. His demonstration of power over death before the crucifixion should give greater confidence in the resurrection of himself, right? What he's doing here is showing that he has the power over death so that it's even more believable when he brings himself back from the dead, that he has this type of power, that he does hold the keys. The resurrection of Lazarus is similar to the act of salvation, right? So here's where I said Jesus could have preached a sermon on this. Um, It's very similar to what 
salvation looks like, a spiritual resurrection, right? It's, it's the gospel through the Holy Spirit calling us out of death to life. Much like Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. He did that to every single one of us that are a believer, right? He called us by name and said, get back to my fold because you're part of it, right? So he called us by name, called us forth from death to life. John chapter five says we cross from death to life, right? So he calls us by name, calls us out of that situation, right? And then a lifetime ensues of us removing the dead clothing, right? For, for Lazarus, from a physical standpoint, they take that off pretty quickly, right? For us as believers, I think the picture is of, of a sanctification type of perspective where we're called forth from death to life. And then until we actually die physically, there's this process of us removing the old man, right? Removing the clothing of death, removing our old life, because we were dead probably longer than four days. Right? I don't know anybody in here that got saved after four days of being born, right? So there's, a, there's a, a prior lifetime of walking around in dead clothing, right? Sinful fleshly habits that are being removed, that are being changed, that are being transformed, right? What happens here is a great picture of what happens spiritually to us as well. <clears throat> it gives us hope, this passage does, that John 5, 28 through 29 will be accomplished one day, right? That's when Jesus says, we saw this several weeks ago, Jesus says that there's coming a day when everybody in the tombs will hear this message to come forth, right? Everybody will be raised to life once again, but a different kind of life, an eternal type of life. Whereas again, we said Lazarus gets raised to life, but he dies again. God's glory is seen here. How's it put on display? What's seen here by these people believing? Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul talking about the, the gospel and, and Jesus' resurrection and says verse 15, for it is all for your sake, so that his grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So as the gospel goes forth and grace is extended to more and more people, it results in an attitude of thanksgiving, not an attitude of rebellion where they run and tell the Pharisees. We gotta stop Jesus. There's this attitude of thanksgiving, right? And it results in the glory of God, is what Paul tells us. Many choose to believe in Jesus who calls the dead to life. Number two, many choose to reject Jesus due to fear of lifestyle change. The antagonism grows. What we're told from the text here is that the people see the signs They're not confused about the signs. They just reject them. They rebel against them. It says, verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come, take away both our place and our nation. What are they concerned about? They're concerned about their life having to change, that how they've been doing things won't be allowed to continue. All the hoopla and uproar of Jesus is going to draw the attention of the Romans. The Romans are going to come put an end to the little bit of control that they've left with the Pharisees, right? They're going to seize that and take it away because they're going to deem the Pharisees incapable of managing the crowd, 
right? So they're very concerned about their lifestyle having to change. This is another good indicator to us that you read that parable in Luke 16 about the other Lazarus and the rich man and how the rich man's like, look, send somebody back to tell my brothers not to come here, right? And what's the response in that parable? It wouldn't matter, right? Your, your, your brothers are coming here because they're not going to listen even to a raised man, right? You know, even if we, if we raised Lazarus and sent him to talk to your brothers, it's not gonna, they're not going to change, right? And we know that to be true because Lazarus comes back from the dead and these people don't change. Jesus comes back from the dead and these people don't change either, right? Many choose to reject Jesus. Number three, both Jesus and the Jews have the same idea but from different perspectives. Better for one to die than the many. <clears throat> right, so they're, they're, they're wrestling with this because I think they genuinely weren't sure how to put Jesus to death and it feel good in their conscience, right? Because they got to make sure that they're doing the right thing here or else they're guilty of breaking the law. And what's Caiaphas say? He steps in as the high priest. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to him, said to them, you know nothing at all. Now, Caiaphas was a Sadducee who doesn't even believe in the resurrection, right? Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Verse 51, he did not say of this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, what's happening here? Caiaphas is assessing the situation. He's the high priest, so he gets to kind of make the final call here. Well, what's he saying? He's like, look, guys, don't feel bad about what we're about to do. We're about to kill Jesus. And it's better to kill him than for the whole nation to have to suffer under the hands of the Romans. What he's saying is, is if we leave this guy to do what he's doing and we don't kill him, and the whole nation's going to have to suffer because Rome is going to come in. They're going to hate this. They're going to take our power away. They're going to take our political offices away. They're going to seize control of this whole thing. And now the whole nation's going to have to suffer from it. Right? So better for one man to die than for many to have to suffer. The irony is that he's absolutely right. Better for one man to die than for many to have to suffer. But the, the, the result is drastically different than what he intended right? Why does the pastor say that he's prophesying? Well, you've been in a conversation before where somebody says something's going to happen and you say, well, maybe you'll end up being a prophet. Maybe that will come to be true, right? That's what it means by prophecy here is that he ends up prophesying something that's absolutely true that comes to pass in the future, that Jesus does end up dying so that many don't have to perish, right? He doesn't realize that he is, he is testifying to the substitutionary atonement of Christ that he will go in our place. Now, he's wanting Jesus to serve as a substitutionary atonement in a whole different way, right? Let's kill him to satisfy whose wrath? The Romans, right? Let's make Jesus the sacrificial lamb to satisfy the wrath of the Romans, right? The irony is that they end up putting Jesus on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God, right? They were right and yet really wrong, right? Right in the sense that far better for Jesus to die than for many. 
their intention behind it is what condemns them to hell, though. Right? Without repentance, they put Jesus forward and say, let's let him die so that we keep control. Right? We keep control of our life. We keep control of what we're doing if we put him to death. They both have the same idea, just drastically different perspectives. It's politically expedient for the Pharisees and the Sadducees to rid themselves of Jesus to preserve their power. Their current lifestyle is too important and too precious to them to see it go. Now, the irony continues in the fact that it's Passover season, right? Like the season of substitutionary atonement where better for the lamb to die, right, than for us to lose our firstborn back in Egypt, right? So they are celebrating in the midst of all this scheming about how to kill Jesus. How do we make Jesus the sacrificial lamb for the wrath of the Romans to be satisfied and not come after us, right? They've completely missed the fact that Jesus is the satisfaction of God's wrath so that God doesn't come after us, right? So that our sin is paid for, so that our sin is dealt with, right? That's, that's the gospel that we see in this passage. It's, it's everything, this whole Lazarus story, culminating in this picture that Jesus will, at the time of Passover, be the substitutionary lamb for us. The application for us. Two things. Number one, going back to Jesus' prayer. Let's look for opportunities this week to pray with and for somebody this week, especially if you're in a conversation where words don't seem appropriate or don't seem enough in that context. Look for ways to to offer to pray with somebody this week and pray a believing prayer over them if they're struggling to believe themselves. And then number two, look for manifestations of God's glory this week, particularly if you're in the midst of a trial and rejoice over his greatness. Right When we're talking about God's glory, we're looking for ways that God shows his greatness We don't want to miss it because we're doubting him, questioning him. So look for ways that that God makes his glory known this week. Because it will be made known. We just may not be in tune or in line enough to see it. Look for manifestations of God's glory this week, particularly if you're in the midst of a trial and rejoice over his greatness. And then our family worship questions this week. What are some of your favorite promises of God? And spend some time taking turns as a family, praying the promises of God back to him by thanking him and asking him to keep those promises this week. Right? So just like Jesus, praying to God for certain things, thanking him for those things before they even come to pass. Right? We have to be a little bit more big picture than Jesus got to because he's completely in line with God's will. But we too can follow that model. Praying promises back to God right, and thanking him for keeping those promises even before he does, which sometimes will help us see him keep those promises better. Let's pray together. God, we love you, and we thank you that you raised Lazarus from the dead. You increased the belief of your disciples. We thank you that you used it to incite a rebellion by the Pharisees, we're thankful that you used their, their hatred and their anger towards Jesus for good in our life. We're thankful that Christ did die 
in the place of many. But God, we're thankful that it was bigger than satisfying the wrath of the Romans, that instead you satisfied your own wrath against us by sacrificing your son, Christ. Lord, we love you and thank you that you've called us to salvation. God, we thank you that you've called us from spiritual death to spiritual life. We're thankful that you have started a work in us and you are continuing to remove those grave clothes from our own life. God, I pray that we would continue to submit ourselves in obedience to you, even when it doesn't make sense, that we would trust you and obey you. God, we look forward to the day where resurrection occurs for all of us. And until that day comes, as we continue to walk through the valley of the shadow of death at times, where some of us are even touched by death, God, I pray it's in the midst of that grief that we would trust you more, we would believe in you more, that our mindset would be a believing mindset. When it's not, I pray that you would surround us by others who are stronger in that moment to help us believe so that ultimately we don't miss your glory that's being put on display around us. We thank you that we can trust that you're always working for our good, that your glory is always being put on display. We ask for that even again this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.